0: Um, today we are finishing out this series in 2 Corinthians. It's been going for quite some time. We started it in, back in the summer with a little bit of breaks here and there, but really I have the pleasure of closing us out and showing what Paul said at the very end. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've kind of bonded with Paul throughout this whole journey because he's been, we've been through so much with him as he's challenged the Corinthians and as he has taught them and struggled with them and been quite emotional in this letter. Um, I feel like we've grown together. I'm a little sad to say goodbye, but that's all right. It's been a good time. Um, Now we're going to come to the end, and we're going to read what Paul says to finish out this journey that he's been on with the Corinthians. As I said, we're going to start in chapter 12, verse 11, and we'll read through the whole thing, so bear with me and try to picture the scene as we read. I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. The, the things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because I, what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you, and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course?" Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling and jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder." I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but he is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will, do, you will not do anything wrong, not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may have seemed to fail. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not tearing you down. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints, they send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us this morning to hear your voice, to understand and apply Paul's teaching to our lives, so that we can become more and more like you. Amen. Amen. Now, how many of you would agree that the final words that you choose to say to someone are important? Whether it's not just, not just on their deathbed, but perhaps just at the end of a conversation, or someone walks out the door, or um, when you're leaving them from going out to eat together. Those last few words that you choose to say, they matter, don't they? They're normally a social sentiment like, goodbye, you know, have a good day, or um, love you, God bless, one of those things. Or perhaps it's a reminder, the things that you want to be certain that they don't forget. Um, husbands or wives saying, don't forget the kids at 3 o'clock, or don't forget to take out the trash is a classic one. Um, growing up, my mom had a habit of doing this to us kids, especially when I started driving. I would be walking out the door and grab my keys and be heading out and wave and say I love you. And after she said I love you, she would then spew out this long list of instructions that I had heard a million times. I knew every one of them. It would go something like, don't forget to drive, drive the speed limit, stop at red lights, look both ways, make sure you turn on your turn signal, did I tell you to put on your seatbelt? And stop at red lights, make sure you do that. That's important. And be safe. And I would just wave, love you, Mom, or on my more sarcastic days, being the somewhat snarky teenager that I was, I would respond with, really, Mom? I was planning on driving through all of the red lights today. Thank you. Thanks for that reminder. No, I wouldn't recommend that. I'm much nicer these days. Um, But maybe you can relate with your spouse or friends or family, people that when they leave you, you want to say something to them. You want to leave them with something for my mom this ritual of reciting the same instructions day after day it was her way of showing me that she cared for me it was her way of ensuring that my safety that, she, that i knew that my safety was her top priority she didn't want me to forget the things that mattered most And so today, as we approach this passage, that's the lens I want us to be thinking of, that's the perspective we're gonna use, that over these last 13 chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been been teaching the Corinthian church lots of different truths and themes. And I wanna look at three different ones that really, really matter, because if this is how he chose to end it, and these are the things that he wants to stick, this is what matters most. So the three final instructions that mark um, what it looks like to be a body of Christ that Paul's been teaching this church. The first is to live in unity, the second is to live authentically. And the third, to live by the power of God. So let's just spend a few minutes and we're gonna look at each one of those things a little bit more in depth. One, live in unity. As we've learned, one of the major issues with the Corinthian church has been the division that's been brought up by super apostles. So we've heard about them a few weeks ago, as Mark told us, these false apostles that were, that were eloquent and they looked great and everyone respected them. They seemed like what a leader should be. And then there was Paul, who seemed weak and and maybe not quite as qualified as the others. And and there was a struggle of who to follow, who had the real authority. These super apostles, they had been the cause of factions and discord. If you look at chapter 12, verse 20 and 21, Paul talks about some of these things. He talks about anger and jealousy and factions. And so really, it's no surprise that one of the major themes that Paul wants us to be reminded of is this theme of unity. Will you look with me to chapter 13, verse 11? Finally, brothers, goodbye, aim for perfection, listen to my appeal, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. So how does Paul highlight unity here? Well, there's three ways. First, he calls them brothers. Second, he says to be of one mind. And third, he says to live in peace. Now, it may not seem like much that Paul calls them brothers. It may just seem like, oh, we hear that at all the different Bible verses and the endings of letters. That's common. But I think here actually it's quite significant when you think about the discord that's been happening between Paul and the Corinthian church. We've read there's been a lot of grief, there's been a lot of hurt as the Corinthians have said Paul doesn't have the authority he's meant to have, or as Paul has had to correct the Corinthian church, surely there's some friction, some dissension in this this relationship. And so the fact that at the end he still calls them brothers is that reminder that we're all in the same family. Despite what's happened, despite the past, despite what we're going through now, this this pruning process, we are still in the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is on their side. And this is so essential for relationships, isn't it? When, When you know that someone's with you and for you, it's so much easier to hear what they have to say to you. I know for me just recently, I had to have a bit of a difficult conversation with someone that I love very much, and they kind of had to call me out. I was dealing with this, trying to make this decision, and I wasn't sure what to do. And um, I think I did need to be challenged in my thinking a little bit, and I knew this conversation wasn't going to be easy, but what made it so effective and what made it something that actually changed how I thought I was able to pray about it was how the person framed it. The beginning, before, we said, before he, they said anything, he said, first, I need you to know that I love you very much was the first thing out of his mouth. And then we go on through the rest of the conversation. And then the last thing was, I love you very much. And I'm going to support you no matter what decision you make. And it was those two things, those kind of parentheses that went on either side, that just made me feel like, oh, I don't have to be defensive. I don't have to worry. I can hear the correction. I can hear it because I know we're on the same team. We're working together and we're in this together. And as we read, as we read these verses... They weren't necessarily fluffy, were they? There was some intense moments there. They're tough, direct challenges. Paul's saying, I will deal with you. I have the power to deal with you. But here he starts out by saying, you are my brothers, you are my dear friends, and we are in this together. Then he goes on, he says, we need to be of one mind, and we need to live in peace. When I first read those lines, be of one mind and live in peace, I kind of imagined this like circle of everyone like sitting down saying kumbaya together, and I don't exactly think that's the picture that Paul is painting here. He's not saying that we all have to agree and we all have to be singing and chanting along together. Instead, Paul's calling the Corinthians to be unified in their truth, in their understanding of the truth, and in their understanding of the purpose. Uh, Paul explains it in Philippians 2, being like-minded as being one in spirit and one in purpose which I think is a really good understanding, one in spirit and one in purpose. Following from this, he says to live in peace, meaning to live in harmony with one another, throw out the quarreling and the fighting and the things that don't matter. Remember, we're brothers, we're on the same team. And so to help illustrate this, I'm going to boldly enter the world of sports analogies, despite the fact that I have no athletic experience whatsoever, so bear with me here. Um, if you are on a football team, or if you're playing a game, the first thing to know is your team. You have to know the guys that are on your side. And secondly, you have to know the rules. You have the same book that you're all working towards, and then you have the same goal that you're trying to get to. You're trying to get the ball in the net basically, or you know the touchdown post or rugby, whatever, whatever it is. You're trying to get the ball through the thing that it's meant to be through. So that's the goal, you have the rule book and you're all on the same team. That's what being like-minded is. It's agreeing on the rule book and agreeing on the purpose to score a goal. And being living in peace means that achieve, as you achieve that goal, as you try to attempt that goal, you're not fighting each other. I was talking to my boyfriend about this concept and I was making it really theological and trying to draw out all of these like scriptures, things like that. And he just goes, so basically we all need to be going in the same direction and not kill each other. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what this is saying. We need to be going in the same direction and not kill each other on the way there. Paul says to us and to the Corinthians, guys, we're on the same team. We have one spirit, have one purpose. That rule book, it's this, it's the word of God. We all stop here. This is where we come for truth, and it's God's Spirit in us that we're working towards, the purpose of building one another up, building up the kingdom, and we have to do that together in harmony to achieve that purpose. So live with unity, live in unity with one another. Secondly, live authentically. We're going to stick with this verse 11 in chapter 13 for a minute, where Paul says, to aim for perfection now. I don't know if there's any perfectionist in the room. If anyone else has this neurotic inclination to do everything perfectly, that would be me. Um, You read this verse and you feel such a sense of satisfaction. Like, ah, I knew perfection was attainable. Yes, I'm gonna keep going. Actually, that's completely wrong and Paul's gonna put us in our place because that completely contradicts the whole message of weakness and strength. We're not called to be perfect. This idea of perfection is much better translated as mending your ways. In Greek, it's the same verb that is used in Mark 1, where Jesus finds John and James fixing their fishing nets and mending their nets. Now, to help with this, I have a lovely net here, and I am fully trained by Tom from Yorkshire, the YouTube video sensation, on how to mend nets. And I'm here to tell you about it today. So to mend a net, what you have to do is you have to first examine it. You have to look through it. You have to see, are there any holes? What's what's not going to hold up the fish in the end? And then you have to find the knots. And wherever the hole is, you have to try to link these things back to the knots. This was very, very important, Tom said. Always start and end with a knot. You're probably wondering, how is she going to connect this to this? In our story, the Corinthians and us today were the net. And Jesus is the knot that holds things together. And all of these links, this is our faith in action. This is how we live out our faith, the knowledge of God. So when Paul says, mend your nets, what exactly is he wanting them to do? Look at chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Like a fisherman examines his nets to find and mend the holes, so does a Christian need to examine their life and see the areas that are broken and the links that are no longer connected to Jesus. Something important here to note is that this isn't necessarily a test about salvation because Paul has been on this journey with the Corinthians. He says later on in that verse, do you not realize that Jesus is in you? So Paul sees Jesus in them. He's been with them on their, on their journey and their conversion and, and he's calling out not their salvation, but how that salvation is being lived out in their life. He's saying, I've seen the sin and I've seen the discord, so what's not matching up? What's not lining up with Jesus? So the test isn't necessarily to prove salvation, but it's to prove authenticity and authentic faith. Do all of the parts link up to Jesus? Do they all link together so this is one piece? The knowledge of Jesus in their head, the experience of Jesus in their heart, and how they live it out. Does it all line up, does it all come back to Jesus? Is it not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge and action? I think one way that we can really look and understand this a bit better is by just examining the outputs of our lives. Things like the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Do we see that coming out of our lives? Did we see that in the Corinthians lives? Because if so, that's the outworking of faith. Do we look different? Do we look different in our workplace or in our homes? How do we act that that what we know about Jesus is really how we're living, that everything's linked up back to him, that he is the knot that holds us together? I think that's a real challenge for all of us today, isn't it? To challenge, to think, okay, God, I need to examine my heart, examine my life, and and test how authentic it is, test how, how I'm living it out. And why is it important that we live authentically? Because earlier in this book, um, Paul talks about in chapter 2 and 3, he says that we are a letter for God, with a letter that has a seal of God on it, where the aroma of Christ, or with a jar of clay. So you see, we are the vessel that holds Jesus to the world, that, that shows who he is, that reflects him. And so if our faith isn't authentic, then they're not going to get the real message. So we need to have that authentic faith so we can be used by the fishermen, so that the net is useful. We need to be sure that our, our, our faith lines up. Live authentically. And thirdly, live by the power of God. This is perhaps the most significant uh, message throughout all of Paul's teaching to the Corinthians. Um, This idea that in our weakness, God is made strong. In our weakness, God is powerful. Ten different times Paul talks about this, and not just ten, you know, one-liners. It's chunks of Scripture all throughout First and Second Corinthians. Over and over and over again, Paul is belaboring this point. It is not about me. I am weak, he says to the Corinthians. You've asked me to prove myself, and yes, I'm weak. He's, he's said over and over again all the ways that he's suffered, and that is how he's proven his authority. Let's look at chapter 13, verses 3 through 4. Where it says, Since you are demanding proof that Christ is in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness and lives by God's power. So in these verses, Paul is yet again showing the Corinthians that the authority that he has comes from God. He's given all of his other credentials at this point. We saw in the very first verse that we read, Paul's been made a fool. He's made himself look a fool because he's played their game. He's played back and forth with the Corinthians and said, you know what, fine. You want to hear my credentials? Let me tell you them. I've got a long list. They might not be what you like, but here's the list. And there's lots of these throughout the chapter. I'll just highlight a few. Verse 12, he's established by signs, wonders, and miracles. That proves his authority. He's never burdened them. He's not asking to take from them, but wants to give to them. Surely that's a sign of mentorship and and spiritual fathering. He speaks in the sight of God and of those in Christ. So he's speaking the words of God. And he has not failed the test. That test that we just talked about, Paul said, I've done that. I've looked at myself. I see my actions, and it lines up. This is what gives me the authority. But all of those things, while they add to the authority of Paul, the most important one, the thing that he says matters above everything else, is that he's weak. He says, yeah, I know you think I'm weak, and admittedly I am, but that is the whole point, because it is in my weakness that God has given me his power. It's manifested in the weakness of me. That is where the authority comes from. And how do we know this? What analogy can we draw that, you know, describes strength and weakness? And there's no point in saying anything other than the cross. The cross of Jesus is the best picture of God's weakness, what, or the weakness becoming powerful. What man saw as, as the worst day in Christian history, the day when Jesus died on the cross, and the sadness the disciples must have felt, the weakness of what everything they believed in at that moment, was then made, made manifest. God's power In the resurrection, it's the perfect picture of God's weakness and then turning it in to the most powerful moment. The end of that verse continues on, Likewise, we are weak in Him, yet by God's power we will live with Him to serve you. We're weak in Him, but by God's power we live with Him. So what can we learn from this? I think we can learn that our strength doesn't come from us. Our strength comes from the power of God. And gaining this power, it doesn't require things like eloquence or qualification or being the best or being perfect. No, actually, exactly the opposite. It requires weakness, which none of us like. It requires humility, which is hard. And it requires us constantly coming back to the cross, constantly being at the foot of the cross and recognizing our own inability to have power, our own inability to do anything other than surrender to God. To say, God, I need you to help mend my nets. I need you to help me on this path. I need your power in my weakness. The Corinthians had a lot to sort out, didn't they? They had a lot of things that Paul's been pointing out over these chapters. And Paul was placed in, the, in a place of authority to correct them and to strengthen them through the power of God and for their good. Remember, they're on the same team here. So Paul lays out, he says, we're living by the power of God, and this requires a response, a responsive action, one of surrendering their own ways and leaning into the power of God in their lives. And I think the same response is here for us today, where if we want to live by the power of God, we have to surrender, and we have to allow God to correct us. It wasn't easy for the Corinthians to be corrected. It's probably not easy if we examine ourselves and find some holes, but we have to allow God to correct us and the power of God to do that. But we also have to allow the power of God to strengthen us and to empower us in his ministry and in the work for him as he appoints us for his service. So they work together, the power to correct and the power to strengthen in us appointed for his service. And so now we've come to the end of Paul's message, the end of the second Corinthians. His final instructions to them, which were to live in unity, to live authentically, and to live by the power of God. Now, all of those things sound great, but they might be a bit difficult to put into place, aren't they? To put into action. And when you're thinking about how to do this, I typically would go through a list of all of the things I need to do, all of the scriptures I need to memorize or things I need to look at to make sure that I I do these three things. The best part of this sermon, the best part of this message is that it's nothing to do with me or you. It is no action that we have to do, but it's who God is, and it's by the power that's in the final verse, verse 14. This tells us how we can achieve these things. Let's read it together. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I had to laugh when I realized that this was part of um, what I was preaching, because it's kind of an inside joke between me and the staff team. Sorry if you've heard this story before. But um, I'm not sure if you know, but this, this verse is also known as the blessing, and in a lot of church tradition, people will say it out loud to one another as a way of blessing them and encouraging them, and they kind of look around and say it to one another. When I first moved to England, I was on, um, I was doing staff prayers on one of my first weeks, and Paul said, Okay, guys, let's say the blessing. And all of a sudden, 20 people start staring into each other's eyes, saying this verse, reciting it out loud. It's not up on the screen anywhere. We haven't turned to it in our Bibles. And Everyone's just looking around, reciting it. I just. Panicked. It was like this moment of sheer, like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. What is happening here? I've never heard of this before. And so I just started mouthing watermelon. <laughs> I'm not exactly proud of that, but I just went watermelon, 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 and nodded and smiled at people, like, surely I know what's going on. I bless you. Uh huh. No idea what was happening. I then later was told by Lauren and Charlie, like, this isn't just some strange church tradition that you don't know about. Like, it is a Bible verse, Ally. You should probably look it up. Great. Even more embarrassed now. Awesome. All of that to say, this verse is permanently ingrained in my mind. I will never again forget this verse. I know what the grace is, and I will never, ever forget it. And I would dare to say that actually, none of us should forget it. None of us should ever forget these words, not because it's a tr- church tradition, not because you don't want to be embarrassed and have to melt watermelon to one another because you don't know what the heck is happening, but because it's in this verse that we see everything come together. We, we see unity as a whole picture, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all together. And we see the ways that this is possible. So the grace of Jesus makes it possible for us to live authentically. It's not up to us to make ourselves better, it's up to us to examine ourselves, find those things and lay them at the cross so that the grace of Jesus can take care of them. And then it's about the love of God, which is the best shown in the power of the cross, his love for us which was shown through his power on the cross and in the resurrection. And then finally, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which is how we partner with the Holy Spirit to be unified to the work of God as well as unified together. That's how we find that unity. So how do we live in unity and live authentically and live in the power of God? By surrendering to the grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen.